The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. People say he ain't no good, and I'm crazy as a loon. Cause I shave my head in the morning, pick guitar in the afternoon. Just like old Chief and Charlie, I like to lay around in the shade. Well, I ain't got no money, but you better believe I got it made. Cause I ain't asking nobody for nothing. If I can't get it on my Leave this bald-headed country boy alone What's up folks? Thank you all for tuning in to the Josh Terry Podcast I want to give a big thank you to each and every one of our sponsors 3B Construction and Roofing Your Choice Healthcare Lori's Dive-In DPF Alternatives Nobles Networking Project K9 Hero Cottonfield Grill Pearl Promoting Shout out to my girl Miss Anna Thank you for everything you do darling Back Road Park and Event Venue. Hello to Mr. Kevin and Ty. Uh, Kevin, thank you very much for letting us use your, uh, your beach house next week. I hope we don't mess it up too bad. And thank you, boys, for coming and being part of it. Cashman's Pub, my dude Ron. Uh, down the under Hat Code, Deep South Chemicals. Hey there, Mr. Scott. And better than basic, uh, Miss Erica, who does our website. You please go check that out now. Buy some merch. That's thejoshterrypodcast.com. Thank you to each and every one of you guys. Uh, I know I didn't say all of your names, but we're going to change it up how we do this sometimes. We're going to do a couple episodes to where the uh, the ads run longer, and some of them, they run a little shorter. But I d- either way, however it goes, thank you to all of y'all. You guys are such a big help for everything that I do. And thank you to each and every one of you listeners. Now, let's get into the show. What's up, folks? Thank you all for tuning in to the Josh Terry Podcast. Uh, this next show, I literally been trying to get this dude on the show for like two months now, and we have just dodged each other left and right. Uh, but I am excited to have Mr. Danny Collins on the show. Uh, what's up, brother? How you doing today? Doing well, doing well. You? Uh, I'm I'm good, man. You're my second of three shows today, and I've been I literally have been waiting on this one. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people tagged me in some of your original posts on okay. TikTok and everything, and I started looking at it and I started listening to your story and I was like, okay, I'm just not going to listen anymore. I'm getting this dude on the show. Hell or high water. It's about time I got you, dude. Let's do it. Yeah. You know what? It's, it's crazy because life is hectic. And I, at first I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit skeptical because I was like, man, this guy's ton of country. If he's watching my content, I know I can get a little political at times. And sometimes, sometimes people don't want to have, 
an honest conversation with me. So I've had a lot of people ask me to go on podcasts, but they've been, I, sometimes I want to know what their agenda is. Yeah. And if there's a, if there's a motive behind it, like, are they, are they trying to trap me or set me up or are we going to have like real conversation, you know? Cause I've had those people that will yeah. literally try to um, befriend me only to try to like catch me in something or try to shame me or so. Um, but you posted a video on TikTok a little while back and I was like, okay, like I, I think this guy and I are probably more on the same page than, than I would have initially thought. And yeah. And that's why I think it's good probably not to judge a book by its cover. Cause I was like, okay, he's countries. Um, I grew up country, but a lot of my, you know, um, I drifted away from like the people I grew up with and stuff because of the politics and it got a little crazy. And um, so a lot of stuff has changed for me, but I'm glad that we finally connected and, and are able to sit well, down and have a conversation. It's, it's funny <laughs> you say that because I'm really about how all people, how you treat me. One of my, yeah. and I don't know your political beliefs, your religious beliefs, nothing like that. Um, we'll find them out sometime in the next little bit while we're talking. But my best, one of my best friends, this bullhead, the skull that we got right here, she bought mm -hmm. for me, put in the studio. She's an atheist. She's a liberal. She is a whole lot of things and I'm not, I'm an independent at, at best. Like I don't have a side, but she's mm -hmm. one of my best friends in this world. And it's just the way that she's always treated me. Like we're, we, I like different people. I don't think that our country anyway was supposed to be blue and red. I think that we were all supposed to come to work works together for us as a whole. And I, I think agree. we've got so far away from, Oh, you have a different belief in this one thing than I do. Oh, I can't be your friend. No, mm -hmm. I, I like people that have a different mindset. It also gives you a chance to see, a different perspective, a different side of a story. Anybody that doesn't want to see that shit is closed-minded. And whether they're left or right, I don't want a closed-minded person around me. Yeah, and I agree with that. Um, the only thing, and I think you said this in the videos, that I, I don't, I won't stand for like hate or bigotry, right. no matter what side it's on. You know, yeah, exactly. and that's where like I'll kind of check it. But I totally agree. I think we need to have more civil discourse and, and healthy conversation, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. You know, I've been conservative my entire life. And just recently I started to shift away from that. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't even say I, I identify as a Democrat either in, in any way, shape or form. But I just know that a lot of the conservative beliefs that I stood on, I think I've kind of evolved from those beliefs and the irony of it is just like you said, is that I became friends with a black guy who happened to be a Muslim that introduced me to a whole new perspective, a whole new world. And I guess as we get into my story, like I can explain that a little bit more, elaborate on that. But um, and that's kind of what led me to to my shift. But I know politics and in, in people's belief systems, it can be controversial and a lot of people get politically charged and then they start attaching you know name calling and belittling and that's where i kind of i'm like okay like i'm not with all that you know like you can disagree with me and i'm okay with that and, and we can have conversation and i would hope that there's substance and, and data and evidence that backs it up but like i'm open to learning and you can Excellent. change my mind that's Absolutely. the one thing you can change my mind my mind can be changed if you have facts and evidence that to, to back it up so I think the people that are scared of that are just scared of what they don't know, the unknown.
and they would rather be closed minded than open up to there might be something completely different. And dude, you, you couldn't have said it no better right there. I don't care what you believe, but just have a reason why you believe it. And if you can yep. present it to me in a nice way, into a logical, reasonable way, then regardless if I agree with you or not, I can respect you because you're passionate about a, a, a subject. I don't like mm -hmm. it when either side or anybody in general, regardless if you like politics or not, if I ask you why you believe in something and you just say, because I do, like, and you don't <laughs> want, and I'm trying to learn, like, yeah. tell me, just tell me why, like, and you don't have to go into full detail with it, but let me know that you're not just saying this to go along with everybody yeah. else. Let me know why you actually do. Yeah. And to show that you have the ability to critically think and be an independent thinker. And it's funny because then people toss around the words, you know, snowflake and um, <laughs> sheep and, you know, you, we hear it all the time and it's just like, but I can literally give you a reason why. I believe on everything that I believe on. And I, and I admit that I don't know everything, you know, yeah. and uh, I had a mentor once tell me that humility in its purest form is to remain teachable. And I feel like if I ever get in a place where I feel like I know it all and I'm not teachable, then I'm probably in a bad spot. So <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. where my, that's where my mom is, dude. She knows every yeah. fucking thing. You can't tell her no different about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and that seems to be the case with a lot of people these days you know but most of it's not only changing the narrative but it's changing our approach to the conversation yeah. and uh and that's what i was grateful for because even when i was spouting like all my nonsense and hateful rhetoric and the things that i would say and i and i didn't do it like willingly i wasn't willingly trying to be a jerk i really thought it was morally that i was i was right you know in many of the issues that i was i was debating on um but once i was introduced somebody befriended me in spite of everything that i was saying and they showed me that there's a different way you know like they became friends with me even though they didn't agree with me and they didn't even tell me right away that they didn't agree with me they just they were more concerned with the friendship than they were with being right and in the long run in the long run that ended up having a more profound impact on my life so um yeah well with that without those different perspectives though dude i'm telling you it's like we only live on one side of the world really mm -hmm. you, are we only which i know we only use one half of our brain but it's literally where if you're not open to hearing somebody else's story or you're open to hear their beliefs then you're just pretty much being a bigot in my mind. And you're saying, Oh, I'm right. Regardless of whatever. And I just don't have time for that in my life anymore. It's just too toxic. It's too stupid to me. Everybody mm -hmm. should be able to express all their feelings or their beliefs. And the person sitting across from them, as long as both sides are doing it in a nice way, there should be a mutual respect when you get it from the table. Absolutely. And that's what politics should be, right? <laughs> but I think we kind of lost our way a little bit. And that, and honestly, when when we bring up Trump, I think that's one of the things that the, the civility went out the door Yeah. in a lot of ways. And it just became where we just got, we normalized like name calling and, yeah. and just being hateful. And I think if there was one thing that I would say about that whole situation, that's probably what um, I dislike the most 
was that I felt like a lot of that ended up happening where well, it was the civility left the left the room. Well, I'll probably surprise you here. I'm not a big Trump guy. Yeah, uh, I never was like, honestly, even back in 16, uh, when him and Ben Carson were on stage together, I'm a big Ben Carson guy because of mm -hmm. all that, that Ben's done. Um, and it's very hard for my friends in, in small town Georgia to be like, oh, you, you'd rather support an African-American man than support Trump. And the only reason why now I even kind of liked him, kind of liked him and kind of is a stretch is I think he was good for the economy, but I don't want to see him be president again. There was, too, yeah. there was too many times that he could have put out a completely different statement to the world and really helped our country. There was yeah. too many times that he chose to go to Twitter and I get where people are like, Oh, I want the mean tweets back or whatever. It's better than Biden. <laughs> I mean, fucking honestly, anything's better than Biden to be real with yeah. you. But yeah, I'm not a huge Biden fan. Yeah. Either. I don't, I don't want somebody trying to cause separation. I, yeah. I don't, I don't want it. And it's always funny. You said sheep while ago. The people that end up acting most like sheep are the diehard Trump supporters to me. Uh, are yeah. the die, are the diehard left? Like you're following, you're just like blind mouse. It's the blind leading the yeah. blind. Yeah, I don't, I don't really much care for too much of. I like the stance that that was made as we're a powerful country again, but I think it was made in the wrong way. Yeah, don't do it at the expense of other people. Yes, exactly. And, and that's where the issue lies: is that everything's always at either or or at the expense of other people. And I was a diehard Trump person, so yeah. I I was on that Trump train for the longest time. And um, but I realized that everything that he stood on and the things that he did really kind of just brought out the worst in me. It appealed to the worst, <laughs> yeah. me, you know. Um. So, and I did, and it was the economy thing. And that, that was the big thing for me is like, I thought that, you know, with capitalism being the system that we're in, whether you, for better or for worse, it, he understood it better than the rest of the candidates is the way I presented yeah. it. And that, you know, um, he will know what's best with that system. But, you know, there's a lot of arguments about capitalism too, and the exploitation yeah. of the poor or in marginalized communities. So, I mean, that takes it to a whole nother conversation. But um, I I don't know when I I think the biggest wake up call for me was I was in the criminal justice system and seeing the injustices within the system is really what began to change my perspective. Yeah, so, well, this is what got me. And uh, I don't know whether you how much you looked at my stuff or whatever, but in my early 20s uh, from like the age of. 18 to 23 i was not a very good individual i've been in jail i've been to rehab detention centers uh mm -hmm. and like i've seen from the other side what people go through and how literally the department of corrections is just a it's like a never-ending fucking circle like a cycle just to get people back in there to make money for somebody somehow but what got me with trump is I already had that mindset to be open up to other uh, cultures, especially there was a black lives matter rally in Dublin, Georgia, when I worked in radio and mm -hmm. they were there, it was, they were trying to tear down a statue, which if anybody knows my stance on it, 
I don't like the statues that were built uh, in the 1960s, from the 1920s to 1960s. I don't know if you know this, but do you know when like 80% of the Confederate statues were built in this country? All during that time. Yeah, like during Jim Crow yeah. and all that shit. Jim Crow era, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, was, they were trying it, to keep that alive. Yeah, they, it was a slap in the face to the African-American communities that were trying to end segregation and everything. I yeah. I don't mind those coming down whatsoever. The ones yeah. that were actually established right after the Civil War and shit to say this is honoring our fallen, I don't have a problem with those. But the ones that are direct slap in the face to the African-American community have a huge problem with it. But they were having a Black Lives Black Lives Matter rally in Dublin, Georgia, to tear down a statue, and mm. the police were having to separate that organization. And then there was the other side, which was nothing but Trump supporters, and the Trump supporters started having Confederate flags. They started yeah. saying racist shit. And like with me, I honestly just went there to see what it was about. And I was with the police kind of down the middle anyway. And it was just like, I don't know if these people even realize what they're doing right now. Like they're literally spewing hate. And I think that Trump gave them the power to spew hate. He gave people the, the right to want to live in the country they live in and to be proud of it, but never once do I think his message was to spew hate, but I think that's how people took it to where I can tell you to go fuck yourself. And that's not well, the way it should be. It should be a conversation. Well, I think he was smart too, that he knew that he needed that, that demographic of people, yeah. whether he wanted them or not, he knew he needed their vote. And still to this day, and I think that's why you don't see a lot of Republicans denounce them. I don't believe all Republicans are racist, but I've never met one that's explicitly racist that admits to being a white supremacist that isn't yeah. Republican. And I mean, I'm in Florida now. There's a lot of marches with, you know, and, and people holding DeSantis flags with flags with swastikas. And I don't see DeSantis denouncing them. We just had that shooting in Jacksonville. Yeah. And many won't because they know they need that demographic to vote. So even when Trump attempted to with his little fake stand, what do you say? Stand, or something in standby. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like, and uh even then, it was like, we know white supremacists then were saying, you know, we know that he can't explicitly support us or openly support us, but we know that he acknowledges us, you know? And, um, and you know, I, I come from that background, you know? I, I was in a white supremacist gang in prison. So, like, I know what these people supported. I know what their beliefs were. And, and a lot of it was... They were Trump supporters. And even with the Black Lives Matters movement, it was when people would say all lives matters. It was more about being a protest to the protest of Black Lives Matter than actually meaning that, you know, nobody was screaming all lives matters until, you know, people started saying Black Lives Matters or black people started saying Black Lives Matter, you know, and and that that's where a lot of the issues lie. Of course, all lives matter. I heard somebody say it best, like, when you say save the wells, it doesn't mean fuck the seals, you know? Yeah. It's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I think that's true for the Black Lives Matter movement. Because we're saying, you know, people are saying Black Lives Matter, we're not, you know, we're not saying that all lives matter or, or white lives don't matter. Um, but it took a lot of deconstructing for me to even get to this place. I mean, just in 2021, I was an avid Trump supporter. 
I was part of a white supremacist organization. Um, I was just finishing up a prison sentence. So like my life from where it was then to where it is now is like night and day, literally. It's it's yeah, crazy it, to think. That's funny that you say it was around that time. That was about my last, yeah, 2020 would have been my last year in radio, uh, right towards the end of it. And <laughs> it was when NASCAR banned the Confederate flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, I completely understand why they did. I actually stood up for NASCAR and was like, this is why I agree with it on radio. Well, I'm in South Georgia, dude. Like, there's, <laughs> there's some shit you could say. There's some shit you can't without pissing people off. Yeah. And two things happened that day that I'll never forget the rest of my life. One, we had an 80-year-old woman, 80-something-year-old woman that called into the radio station and said she had never thought about what that flag meant to the African-American community until I broke it down for her on radio. And she said mm. she would never look at it again the same. The second thing was a lot fucking worse is one of the organizations around here, the Sons of Confederacy, <laughs> threatened my life to where I couldn't come to work for a couple of days. And wow. when I tell people all the time, I have never had anybody threaten my life like they did. I've had people say, I'm going to beat your ass or whatever. And we all have had those stupid fucking yeah. things. But for somebody to go out of their way for a death threat and for them mm-hmm. to look exactly like me, it yeah. showed me right then that my way of thinking was evolving into the right way already. That yeah. for people that are that just that closed minded or that hateful, no matter what you ever say to them, they're never going to change. And I don't want to be around people or associated with anything like that. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think that's why it's important to not, to only not be racist, but to do the work of anti-racism. And I think that it's important for people that look like us, you're in South Georgia with the way you present yourself is to educate people like the 80 year old woman who had no idea how that could possibly be perceived you know, to the black community, because most of the time, those people will never listen to people in the black community, but they'll listen to a voice like yours on the radio, or they'll listen to a voice like mine with my platform um, and and see it through a different lens, even with the whole make America great again slogan. And when somebody presented it to me this way, when was America ever great for the black community? Name a time in in, in history, you know, that America was great for, for black people. And and you mean to tell me that's what we were trying to get back to? So and when I and when it was presented to me that way, it was like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Like if I'm a black person in America and I've got a political figure that has a huge following over half the nation, absolutely would die for this person. And they're saying make America great again, which would obviously imply that we're going back to a period in time in the United States that was better than now, when could that have ever been for, for black people? Yeah. I mean, it couldn't have been slavery, reconstruction, convict leasing, Jim Crow segregation. I mean, you, there's no period in time when it was ever good, you know? And that made a lot of sense. Yeah, that's how a lot of stuff has been presented to me. And, mm-hmm. but also too, like I, I want to get to in just a second why you've been to prison and everything. I want to start off with like the beginning of your story and all that stuff, but I want, I'll leave it with this before we go there. I think me and you being in some of those places and seeing life from a different point of view 
is how every single person ought to live. When, when you have to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes and actually live that life or be part of it, man, it, it gives you a different perspective. And people who have a silver spoon in their mouth will never get it. People that were raised to hate people just because of the way they look will never get it. Uh, it, it opens you up, man. It just, it, even growing up around here, there's racist people, there's racist people everywhere, but playing football with some boys growing up showed me right then that, man, these boys love me way more than anybody else and are good to me. Why mm -hmm. have I always been taught by outside influences that I'm supposed to be mean to them for no fucking reason? Yeah, yeah. Like people or people, perceive them in a different way. That was the yeah. biggest thing for me. It was more subtle. Like it wasn't yeah. like I was taught to explicitly hate, you know, other races, but it was more like I equated like black people with poverty or criminality, you know, like just saying things like black on black crime. And, you know, a lot of the language that I used and a lot of the history and the whitewashing of history that I was taught that, you know, I think there's a lot of well-intentioned people that are racist not because they have hatred inside of them or because they want to hate another race i think it's more because of the way they were taught and the i think the that for me and in the racism that i experienced and what i see is that a lot of times it's rooted in our education system it's rooted in the way that we're we are taught to perceive things the way that we you know are taught to look at other you know marginalized communities and and a lot of times we're taught to chop it up. Oh, it's just personal accountability, you know, and uh, black people just need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and uh, and take accountability for their actions without ever questioning the institutions and the systems that got us to where we are today in the state of much of, you know, different communities, marginalized communities and, and where we're at in America today. So. I think that's the other side of the equation. Of course, personal accountability is a thing. And nobody would ever say that, you know, even for me in the places that I've been, you know, I have to 100 percent accept, full, you know, full responsibility for my actions. And um, and I think two things can be true at one time, you know, personal accountability and and holding the system accountable are are wanting a more perfect union or not mutually exclusive ideas. Both can be true at the same time. And, and the same is. Is true for, you know, in my personal life, you know, like I can be a victim of a system while also overcoming the system or, you know, like uh, both things can be true. And that and that's true for for the black community, because a lot of people will be like, oh, you're just perpetuating a victim mindset. Well, no, like people can be victims and overcomers at the same time. Look at, you know, sexual assault survivors when they're abused. They obviously got to try to go on with their lives. So they overcome that abuse as well. Does it make them any less of a victim? No. But it also, you know, shows their strength and resilience and their ability to overcome. And um, and I think that's an important conversation to have, too. Yeah. But, yeah. You are well-versed, well-educated. <laughs> and as much as I thought I was going to like this show, I already know I'm going to like it 10 times more. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's good to see that. It's good to hear somebody. Um, and everybody will understand when he gets done telling his story how you can start off one way and you can turn a negative into a positive and that, and like a lot of the shit that you've been through would have crippled most people and you've done it to educate yourself and to just become a better human being to where a lot of people use it as an excuse to, to be the worst version of themselves. 
And I, yeah. I, I respect the shit out of you for that. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, uh, it definitely well, hasn't always been easy, man. So, well, it, well, the best roads to go down usually ain't. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I, you go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, no, go ahead. So I, I want to get into where all this started, to be honest with you, because uh, I've been waiting to hear all of it. But I know that the people that are going to be listening are just going to I mean, you keep rambling on this. We ain't going to get none of your story in. Yeah, right. So I grew up in Fort Pierce, Florida. I'm 40 years old, born 1983, Fort, Fort Pierce, Florida, small town in, you know, just north of Palm Beach. Pretty segregated town, pretty – I was conditioned pretty much from the get-go to believe a certain way. Um, I was the – I was – Born, I, I lived with my dad and my stepmom, but I was raised to believe that my stepmom was my biological mother. So my biological mother lived three streets down from me my entire life, and I could never tell you what she what she looked like. And um, I was a kid, and I was playing basketball in front of my house one day, shooting around, and this girl comes riding by on a bicycle. Two girls do. One girl points to the other girl and says, hey, Daniel, that's your sister, Rebecca, and they keep on riding. And... Uh, I was young. I didn't think much of it. I took my ball. I went inside and and didn't say anything. Um, a little while later goes by. I'm in school. Girl comes up to me and she says, Daniel, you don't know me, but my name's Rebecca and I'm your sister. And I take off running, like completely book it down the hallway. Um, didn't know what to think, didn't know how to process, but we didn't communicate in my family. So there was no communication at all. And um, so, again, I didn't say anything to my parents. Uh, I knew that I had a sister named Jessica at my house, but I definitely didn't have a sister named Rebecca. And um, and had no, I, I wasn't, if I, if I would have processed it then, obviously I would have realized that obviously somebody lives close to me. They're in a neighborhood. If they're coming to my house, they're coming to my school. Um, but I was young. So, but it started in my brain. To start, I started to look and, and question, you know, my home life. But I was still young and emotionally immature. And um, I remember when I was nine, I had I was playing baseball and I had to give a birth certificate to my little league coach uh, to verify my age. And my parents gave me my birth certificate to give to them. And I look on the birth certificate and on there is my mother's name. Well, the mother's name on my birth certificate didn't match up with the lady I was calling mom, her name. And back then, too, on the birth certificate I had, and I haven't seen birth certificates do this anymore, but it also had siblings' names. And it had my sister Rebecca's name and her birth date on it. And um, it said Rebecca Hunter, born in 1979. So I was like, wow, you know, like I really do have a sister and a different mom. And I remember like I was crying, but I didn't really know what I was crying about or, and, uh, my little league coach asked me what I was crying about. And he was like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I just told him one day I'm going to grow up and play professional baseball for the Atlanta Braves. So maybe my mom would want me. And um, so it was, I, I just had a really hard time processing it all though. But since we didn't communicate in my family, there was no way for me to, to cope. Um, so I started to act out. Like I was somebody that, that did things for attention. You know, I, I sought a lot of validation. Um, whether it was in school, whether it was with friends, it didn't matter. And uh, I was a straight A student, though. I did really well in school. I was a really good athlete. I played baseball. 
But my mindset was that I'm going to, you know, grow up to play professional baseball. Maybe I can get this relationship with my mom. But I started treating my stepmom with the utmost disrespect. I didn't give her a chance, you know, to be in my life. Um, just treated her like crap, you know, because I, I was blaming her. I had resentments, but they didn't know. They didn't know how to process it either. You know, parents don't get a, a manual to, to raise kids. So they, you know, they were doing the best that they could do at the time, too. But it, it got even crazier, though, because I was when I was like 16, I started dating this girl. And um, my parents were so strict, right? They they make you put down the name of the parents, the address and a phone number before you go before I went to wherever I was going. And I did this and I'm dating this girl. So I put her parents name down, the name, the address, the phone number. And uh, my dad looks at me and says, is is her dad a cop? And I was like, yeah. He was like, you're not going over there. And I was like, what do you mean I'm not going over there? And he said, it has something to do with your biological mother. The first time in my life that he ever mentioned that we ever had a conversation that the lady I'd been calling my mom wasn't my mom. And that this, you know, that I had a different mother. So, of course, me being the person I was, I went over there anyways. And because um, I was rebellious and I didn't listen and I did what I wanted to do. So I went over there and I get there and I tell her. So she goes and tells her dad, you know, I tell her what happened, what transpired with my dad. And she comes back bawling, crying. And she said that my dad or my mom and her dad were second cousins or something so <laughs> here i am dating this girl that i'm related to and <laughs> i guess i should have put it all together because had i been smart enough at the time i'd have realized her last name was fields and that was my mother's maiden name so my mother's maiden name was fields i had a sister her last name was Hunter, so she must have took on the last name of her dad but so i'm dating this girl who happens to be my cousin so thank god i was still a virgin at the time but Obviously, that didn't work out well, but it still just created more confusion in my life. And you, um, you'd be surprised how many times that's happened to folks down here in Georgia. All of a sudden, <laughs> all, all of a sudden, you go home and telling your mom and daddy about this pretty little girl you met at school, and they come back and oh, you can't do that, son. That's your second cousin twice removed or some bullshit. <laughs> you find out you're related, right? Yeah. So I was like, man, this is really some backwards stuff. But I was still you know, real immature. I was real immature at my, cause I, I was sheltered, you know, my parents sheltered me. They tried to protect me at all costs. Um, but they were also strict and, and they disciplined me heavy. I, you know, I got the belt all the time and backhanded across the face. And when I talked back, like it was, um, it, it wasn't the worst, but it definitely wasn't the best, you know, upbringing by any means, but they, they provided for me, you know, they made sure I had everything I needed. They took me to baseball practice. My dad's motto was, you know, make straight A's, do well in school, and I'll pay for your insurance. I'll give you gas money. I'll make sure that you're taken care of. But my mom's motto was in, you know, I call her my mom because she's always been my mom and she raised me. Her motto was that I needed to get a job and learn discipline and responsibility. But obviously having a job and playing sports don't really mesh well while you're in school yeah so um my dad would always tell her no he doesn't need to get a job this is his job this is going to pay for his school whatever whatever he needs and i remember she would always tell him he needs to wake up quit living in la la land fantasy land only you know one in a million people make it 
you know, kids, he needs to, you know, get a job and learn responsibility. It was a constant fight. It was a constant struggle in my house on how they would raise me, on what the discipline should be. And um, and I witnessed that a lot. I mean, there was a time like in my house where like I was supposed to wash the dishes after dinner and we didn't have a dishwasher. I was I was the dishwasher and um, and I didn't do it. And my mom literally came and woke me up like at two o'clock in the morning to have me go wash the dishes. Well, my dad got so mad when she did it because I'm in there pouting and crying. And he was, you know, my biggest enabler and protector. And he came and took every dish out of the cabinets and just threw them all on the ground, like busted them everywhere. Like literally every dish that we owned in the house. And um, and that was just kind of like how my upbringing was with them. It was just a constant back and forth. But I ended up graduating high school. I was 10th in my class. Um, I went on to play baseball at, at a junior college in my freshman year, but it was in my town. So I went and played at Indian River Community College. And um, and I played baseball, but really at the time, like I was still kind of lost in life, didn't really know what I wanted to do, who I was going to be. The only thing I ever really knew was baseball. That's where my identity was. And um, but I was partying a lot my freshman year in college and I was hanging out and I ended up having the worst season that I ever had in baseball. I, I finished with like a one and four record with like a four point five ERA, which is horrible after my freshman year in college. And um, I'm partying one night. I'm hanging out and a guy on my team calls me up and he says, uh, Danny, they called me D.C. He said, D.C., you won't believe it, but you just got drafted by the Atlanta Braves. Oh, shit. Yeah. So I was like, get the fuck out of here. No way. I hang up the phone and I keep going. You know, I'm, I'm hanging out. I'm partying. And uh, he calls me back and he tells me, he goes, yeah, I'm being serious. You really did. He goes, you got drafted late, you know, in the 45th round, but you did get drafted. And I wasn't expecting that. So the next day I get a call and I answer the phone and they're like, hey, can I talk to Mr. Collins, please? And I was like, this is him speaking. He said, my name's Marco Patty. I'm with the Atlanta Braves, and we congratulations. We just drafted you in the 45th round. So back then, they had 50 rounds in the baseball draft. And if you got drafted in the 45th round, you weren't signing. You know, they weren't giving you yeah. nothing. Um, it was just more of a, a formality, a procedural thing. But they also had what was called a draft and follow. So um, two things with baseball. One is if you go to a junior college, you have draft eligibility after every year. Otherwise, if you go to a four-year school, you have to wait till you complete your junior year to declare draft eligibility. Unlike basketball, say somebody goes to Duke or Kansas, they can, you know, say after their first season or their freshman year, they can declare draft eligibility. You can't do that in baseball unless you go to junior college. So that was the loophole. The second thing was is that there was 50 rounds back then. So if you were drafted late and they didn't plan on signing you, they did what was called a draft and follow. So draft and follow means you sign your rights to that team. You go back to school for a year. You progress if you do well and they like what they see. They have like a week grace period to sign you two weeks, a week, something like that. I don't remember what it was before you go back into, the, you know, before the, the next year's amateur draft. Yeah. Um, if they don't like what they see, then they just tell you to go back in the draft. Um so I went back my sophomore year in college and had the absolute best season of my life. So I went from the worst season of my life, my freshman year, to the best season of my life, my sophomore year. And I was still doing well in school. I graduated with like a 3.75 in college, like did well, even though I was partying a lot. Um, I, I, I managed to tame it a little bit my sophomore year. Um, I ended up first team all conference, first team all state. 
And I signed with FIU out of college, out of the fall. If I probably, if I'd have waited to the spring, I probably could have went anywhere in the country at that point because that's how well I was doing. I was a six foot three left handed pitcher. So um, that's really like the ticket to the show. But I had a really good year. My fastball was, you know, in the low 90 range, um, left handed pinpoint accuracy, you know. And um, so I had an agent, but the way it worked back then, too, is that you technically couldn't have an agent. Otherwise, you lose your amateur status. So you have to have what's called a financial advisor and they can guide you. And then but they can't talk directly to the team for you. So the team has to talk to you. And then you got to parlay the information to the agent. And it's kind of a crappy thing because if you sign with an agent, technically you lose your amateur status. Now you have to go pro. So you lose all your leverage of being a collegiate player. So this financial advisor was advising on my behalf, but the team was talking directly to me. So their first offer to me was like $80,000 with, uh, that was it, $80,000 signing bonus. So I take that to him. He says, no. I take it to my dad. My dad says, no, uh, my agent or financial advisor at the time was a man by the name of Bill Rose. And his partner was a man by the name of Brian Doyle. And Brian Doyle um, was with the Yankees, did really well um, with the Yankees, won World Series. But that's kind of like what he hung his whole career around was the a World Series that he had that he did really well. But anyways, they projected that I would go anywhere between the second and the sixth round if I went back in the draft. Um, I, I talked to a couple other scouts from other teams that technically, legally, they weren't supposed to talk to me, and they kind of said this hinted the same thing. I talked to a Philly scout. He said I'd probably go like the – he would take me in the third or fourth round if the Braves didn't sign me. Uh, but I always grew up wanting to play for the Braves. I mean, that's yeah. what I said. One day I'm going to grow up play for the Braves. Maybe my mom would want me. That was kind of like what my ambitions were. And so they made me a call back after I told them no on 80,000. It was like the next day. They called me back. They offered me 100,000 uh, with 20,000 for school. I take it to my agent. He says no. I take it to my dad. My dad's starting to be like, uh, that's a good amount of money. You know, Hell I was yeah. 19 at the time. Didn't grow up rich by any means. You know, my parents still live in the same house that we lived in when I was a kid that they paid, you know, $35,000 for back then. So, like, <laughs> We, um, we definitely weren't rich. So that was a lot of money to me. And so I told him no, though. A couple of days later, he calls me back. He's like, this is going to be our final offer. Uh, you got to take it or leave it. Either you want to sign with the Braves or we're, we're sending you back into the draft. He offered me $125,000, $40,000. So it was a package of like $165,000 or $175,000. Um, and he said, take it or leave it. So I take it to my agent. Of course, he says no, but I take it to my dad and he's like, you better sign. He goes, if that's what they're telling you, you better sign. You always have the opportunity to go back to school. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And um, I signed. I ended up signing the money. I was 19. Um, I figured $165,000, $175,000 was a whole bunch of money to me at 19 years old. And it was a good start on life. But... For me, it, it wasn't good. So <laughs> I went and played my first year in the minor leagues. I ended up having a horrible record, but I had a really good ERA. So I was like one in six, but I had like a 2.87 ERA. I pitched well. Like it wasn't like the greatest, but figuring I just came off my best collegiate season. I didn't have any time off. I went straight from collegiate to 
pro ball, that adjustment, I did well. And, um, but they were like, they were going to invite me to, um, um, winter ball, but they were like, you know, you just need to rest your arms, take the off season off, which off season was not good for me. So I went home with this money and I already had this partying personality, but I still, I didn't, I didn't like the politics of baseball then either. Like I was, I took it all for granted, first of all, but one I, I didn't like because in baseball and pro ball, the way it works is that it's not based on how you perform as much as it is how much money they invest in you. And I seen guys that signed for a million dollars that were playing horribly and partying off the field, but they were getting all the opportunities. But you would see these other guys that signed as free agents that were putting up great numbers and doing everything right. But because the investment was in the, the, the signing bonus baby, as we would call them, then that's who got the opportunities. And so I guess I always had that, that, that sense of fighting for justice back then, <laughs> but at the same time, like I'm not living accordingly. So yeah, that, that's the irony in it, you know, just being a hypocrite. But, um, so like I was still like not happy with baseball. Like I, I still had that void inside of me, that emptiness. And I didn't know like what could fill it. Like because the money didn't do it, the baseball wasn't doing it. Like I just didn't have great relationships with people. I just had this this emptiness inside of me. And I tried uh cocaine for the first time. And that was it for me. Like I already had a drinking problem. I was drinking a lot. But like that, when I did the cocaine, like it made me feel completely like numb, like all that emptiness that I had inside of me, like even if it was for a temporal, temp temporary time, moment in time, it was just like that was it. Like the weight of the world was off me, that burden, like all that um, emotional numbness that, or, you know, pain that I had was numbed. And um, that was like the end all for me. I was like, this was like my savior. And. I started going a lot more. Like I just started partying a lot in the off season. Um, I had a friend that I don't know how much of a friend he really was, but he was selling drugs and I was basically giving him my money to flip, to sell drugs. And like, I was just kind of caught up in that whole street life. Like all my friends back home, like they were like literally dealing in, in weight of Coke and, <laughs> Here I am, like this baseball player that made it out of this life, like out of this world. And in my town, like that's really uh, most people don't make it out of there. You know, they end up trapped in that town. And that was like my opportunity out. But I still wanted to be stuck to, you know, I wanted to be loyal to the friends that I had there and, and, and that lifestyle. And I got caught up in that lifestyle. Um, There's probably like four or five of us living together. All four of them are selling drugs, and I'm probably the only one that's doing them, like, nonstop. I mean, everybody else is doing them now and then, but they're mostly, you know, they're they're literally, every single one of them are selling drugs, you know, like, <laughs> and it was crazy because we're all living in the same house. But um, life just got real crazy for me. Like, I, I ended up spending a whole bunch of money. I went back to spring training the next year. I was 6'3", 155 pounds, soaking wet, like. Whoa. I was skinny and yeah. they were making fun of me. John Sherholtz's son, I'll never forget. John Sherholtz is the, was the GM for the Braves. His son played, but we were out one night and he was like, you got to be the skinniest guy in professional baseball. 
but they had no idea like what I had going on, you know, behind the scenes. I had a bad relationship with a girl at the time too. And her and I were fighting and um, we were out at a bar and she ended up trying to hit me with the stiletto and she missed me and she hit my buddy in the head and I ended up spitting on her and it was this big ordeal. And um, they ended up taking her to jail and then they didn't take me to jail later, but they issued me a warrant. And, um, and, it was a misdemeanor assault charge because I spit on her and I didn't get arrested at the time. But when I went back to spring training with the Braves, I ended up getting arrested in the parking lot of our hotel for that charge. And um, I couldn't get out because technically it was a domestic violence charge because it was between me and a girlfriend. And um, so I'm in, I'm supposed to be in spring training and here I am arrested with the Braves. And finally my dad was able to hire an attorney out of Palm beach that was able to get me a bond on it. Cause it was a misdemeanor, but because anything domestic violence in Florida, no matter what the circumstances are for anything, they automatically uh, don't give you a, it's a no bond until you get, you got to get in front of a judge and all that stuff. So finally they got me the bond and I get out and the charge ends up going away. And, uh, me and her, we're, we stay together. We're just going back and forth. And but our relationships, it's toxic. You know, like I'm I'm not a healthy person. She wasn't healthy either. And we're both doing drugs together. We're partying together, everything. And the Braves just kind of swept it under the rug like nothing happened. You, they said it happened in the offseason. You know, it's just a little misdemeanor. It's not a big deal. And um, they thought they were protecting me. But me not having any consequences to my actions and just continuing on in the way that I was going with no intervention. Yeah. This day, uh, yeah, I would have been, it would have been over with, you know what I mean? Especially with the advent of social media and everything else. Like if I would have got arrested, that would have happened to me in 2023. It would have been all over social media. Like I would have been done for like instantly done for. There's no way that they could have like, but they were trying to protect me, you know? And that's kind of like the story of my life is that, People that were closest to me were always trying to protect me, but they were ultimately being my biggest enabler, Un- unbeknownst to them. You know, they just they loved me so much. They wanted to see me do so well. But I was just lost. I was an emotional wreck and I just wasn't a good person. You know, as much as I believed in my head, I wanted to be a good person. Uh, my actions weren't re- you know, reflective of that. And, uh, you know, I was misogynistic, I was hateful, I was arrogant, I was prideful, but all of that was just a facade because deep inside, like I was just this broken little boy that had mommy issues, you know, like I, I had abandonment issues and I didn't know how to deal with them. So I dealt with it by, you know, the best that I could to me was the alcohol and drugs numbed it. And then um, I would let a relationship, I'd let someone get close to me just enough but I didn't want them to hurt me. So I pushed them away before they had the opportunity to reject me. And that was kind of how I was with my relationships with women. I didn't know how to treat a woman because I didn't have a good relationship. I didn't have a relationship with my mother. I didn't have a good relationship with my stepmom at all. Cause I never let her in. So I didn't even know how to treat a woman. I didn't know how to talk to a woman. I didn't, you know, any of that. I just, I just wasn't a good person. On top of that, I'm trying to play professional baseball and I have the emotional maturity of a nine-year-old boy. And, um, uh, <laughs> So I keep getting in trouble with the Braves, little things like we had to be in our room by 11, no alcohol, no girls. You had to be clean shaven. You had to have collared shirts on with khaki pants anytime you're out representing the team. And um, 
anything that they paid for, the, those were their rules, like with the no alcohol, no girls. Well, every night we got girls in the room, we're drinking, we're just breaking all the team rules. Um, but because they invest money in you, they try to protect their investment for as long as they can. Well, the last time I got in trouble, we were out in Orlando and there was a couple of guys that had just signed for a good chunk of money, young kids. And we all went out and I, I was kind of the ringleader because our spring training was in Orlando and I'm from Florida. So I knew my way around downtown Orlando. So they always wanted me to take them out. So take the new people out on, uh, on the town and stuff. But I told them I didn't want to go because I was already in enough trouble and I was trying to somewhat be good. Plus, I was just I was I was strung out everything. So I end up going out with the guys anyways. And there's two like surfer type kids from California that are on the team. And we're out in Orlando and there's this Puerto Rican girl that they're trying to holler at or she's Hispanic. But I later learned that she was Puerto Rican and they're and there's like trying to holler at her. She wasn't having it at all. She wasn't feeling them, but they're trying to kind of flaunt the fact that they played for the Braves and we got money, da, 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 but she wasn't, she didn't care, right? And um, so towards the end of the night, we're leaving. Now we're all wasted. And that same girl comes out now with these two big-ass dudes uh, that were Hispanic. They look like, you know, Puerto Rican. And, she, and she's talking to them in Spanish. Well, the guys are trying to holler at them and are trying to, to tell her that uh, what they're like, don't talk to, sorry, I just got a text message. I was trying to read. They're like, good? don't talk to her. <laughs> no, I'm good. So they're like, don't talk to, to that. Um, don't talk to her. She's a bitch. And the guy looks at the guys on my team and they're like, what'd you just say about my sister? And just bam, laid wow. into her. Right. And I was like, Oh my God, here we go. So now they're, they're fighting. There's bicycle cops on their on little bicycles and we're in downtown. There's cops coming. I'm trying to slide to the back to, to creep out of there because I'm like, I cannot be in any more trouble, you know? So um, I get out. I get away. They, they end up getting in trouble. The report gets back to the head of minor league operations who happened to be Dayton Moore at that time. He ended up being a general manager for the Kansas City Royals and winning a World Series and stuff later on. But he was the head of minor league operations for the Braves at the time. The story gets back to him and he asked who's out. And they ended up telling him that I was there too. And because of my standing with the team already and the amount of trouble that I'd been in, they told me to pack it up and they were suspending me indefinitely. Um, so what that means is that they still own the rights to me, but I can't play. I can't go play for any other team. I can't do anything. If I try to demand my release or I would have to demand my release. If I tried to retire, they would still own the rights to me. I'd be done for. So when they suspended me, the whole plan was for me to go home, get my act together and, uh, and, and get it together. But I didn't do that. I got home and I went back to those same friends that were selling drugs and got caught up in that same crowd. And my agent was like, come down to Miami Come work out. Come stay with me. Let's get you back in shape. Let's get you back together. I didn't show up. So um, he was obviously upset and he ends up firing me. So my agent fires me. I'm suspended indefinitely. I'm partying, going crazy. And I basically go through all this money. I start spending all the money pretty much. And the Braves release me. So 
I got to a point in my life where it was just like I was completely depressed. Uh, didn't know what I was. I was addicted to drugs. I was depressed and I was living off of this little bit of money. And eventually I went through all that money. And now I'm homeless in the streets. My dad's trying to protect me. He's trying to save me. Uh, I'm just lost. Did you, try, I, did you try out for any more teams? I didn't. I gave up. I just stopped playing ball altogether. And I literally lost everything. I mean, I was I was homeless in the streets. And at the end of it, and I spent all the money. Uh, I ended up selling my truck for drugs. I had a, a Nissan Titan, brand new Nissan Titan, 2004 Titan on 26 inch rims. Like, that's how bad it was. Like, I lost literally everything, my dignity, like my dad's coming to pick me up out of trap houses. You know, I'm in different hoods all across the state. Like that's was just it, the life I was living. Was it just cocaine? At that time? No, I had a needle in my arm. I was smoking crack. Like I was snorting coke by the time, by the end of it, it was everything. Like I was yeah. just full blown out there. Yeah. I just so, know that. I just know that time period. We've had uh, yeah. several folks on the show that that time period opioids, Oxycontin and all that shit really kicked their ass. Well, that's what really got to me, though, at the end there was opiate addiction. Yeah. So um, initially it was just coke, but then it really got into the needle being in my arm, opiates. It was just it was a tough point in time for me. And I lost everything. People were trying to get me to get it back together. Uh, it just didn't happen. So I was at a point where I, I really wanted to die. Like I was just there. I had one friend that was helping me every now and then. He'd let me stay with him. He's helping me try to get back on my feet. Um, the wife that I'm with now, she was there, but she was also getting tired of my crap and telling me I need to get it together. Um, 2009, I'm living with my wife. She kicks me out because I don't stop using drugs. And she was my girlfriend at the time. Um, and I start living on and off with a friend. Well, he's kind of taking care of me, but I'm also still getting high and he's helping, you know, provide the drugs and stuff like that. Well, I get this great idea that I'm just going to rob him for everything that he's doing. And, um, and that's it. So I go to his house, which he didn't want me back in the house at this point in time. But his girlfriend's sister was there. She didn't really know it. So I knocked on the door. I was like, hey, do you mind if I get my stuff? I still had a bunch of my stuff in the house. So she said, yeah, not a problem. I go in there. I go get my stuff. But then I go in his room and I go in his safe and I take his stuff and I put it in my shoe and I put my stuff over it and I leave. Well, as I'm leaving, I'm like, well, I should have grabbed everything because now it's going to be an issue anyways. I should have got all my stuff and the rest of his stuff and uh, and just left. So I go back to the house. This time when I go back to the house, she answers the door and she has a look on her face like you're not supposed to be here. So and she's on the phone. So I could tell she's probably on the phone with him. So I just take it upon myself this time to go in the house after she opens the door. I go get the rest of the stuff, all my stuff, and I leave. As I'm leaving, here he comes home. His girlfriend's trying to stop me. I didn't care at this point. And uh, and I keep going. Well, she gets on the phone to call the cops. I'm leaving. It's now it's like the middle of the night and I'm getting ready to I'm going to get on 95 and go back to where my girlfriend was because I'm just I've been up for like a week at this point. Like I was just a mess. So as I'm driving down the road, 
I'm going to make a right onto, I'm on a road called Angle Road where I'm at. We make a right on the King's Highway to get on Orange Avenue to 95 or whatever. I'm driving and there's this cop car coming in my direction. So I was going to go right, but I seen he was turning left there. So instead of me turning, I just kept going straight. Well, when I went straight, he stopped in the middle of the road. So I knew, like, this guy's coming for me. So I start to take off. He turns his car around, turns the lights on. In my head, I'm like, I'm not stopping. Like, he's going to have to kill me and arrest me, whatever. I'm just not stopping. Like, at that point, I really wanted suicide by cop. I was depressed and filled with anxiety, and I just didn't care. So I take off. I'm in a high-speed chase. He's chasing me. We start going down all these back roads. Uh, I turn my headlights off, but every time I hit the brakes, he's on me again. Uh, We end up at a dead-end road. He gets out. They get out of their car. They got their guns drawn on me. And in my head, I'm looking in the rearview mirror. And they want me to stop and get out of the car. And I'm, I'm not stopping. So I drop the, the truck in the first gear. It's a am in a company truck, too. The company I was working for was out of Jacksonville. And there was a Nissan Frontier that had, like, a camper on it. It was a little four-banger. And it was wrapped in the company logo. And I, I, was, I was, like, their marketing director. But I wasn't really hardly working because I was a mess. But anyways, um, I dropped the truck in the first gear and I turn it around. And now I'm pointed in the directions of the cops. And rather than them shooting at me, I just kept going. They got out of the way. And I take off again. Well, now they get back in their cars. They presume the chase. We're going. I'm fumbling around for the fuse box because in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get pull the fuse out so they don't see the brake lights. Like, this is how stupid I was at the time. So as I look down to pull out the fuse box, I look up and the road ends. And there's two signs. There's there's a mound and those yellow signs with arrows pointing each direction. And um, my my truck goes straight. And I fly through the signs. I'm in the air. It's like deuce of hazard. And I brace myself with the windshield. My, with the steering wheel and my head hits the windshield as soon as we hit the water I hit water boom so i ended up flipping into taylor creek canal in fort pierce and the truck's starting to sink and i start to panic it's filling filling up with water and i'm panicking now all of a sudden all that i want to die now self-preservation kicks in and now i no longer want to die i'm trying to like get air and save my life but the truck's sinking pretty fast but when a vehicle goes to sink it doesn't just go off you know it started to like level out like buoy out a little bit so i punched the glass and i got this huge scar on my hand right here i punched the glass where the hatch is and where the camper is there's glass too and i don't know if that broke on impact or if that was from me punching it too but i go to slide through this hatch like i'm trying to you know get through there and i feel somebody pull me through well when they pull me through Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving, plus high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O.co. In my mind, I'm just trying to get air, so I swim. And when I go to swim up, my head hits the camper. 
and I start panicking again. And I swallowed a whole bunch of water. The truck's still trying to sink, but there's a little pocket of air in the corner where the hatch is. So I go up to get air, and then now I'm trying to get this hatch open where the truck is or the camper is. And I'm beating on the hatch. I'm beating on the hatch. Finally, I get the corner to pop open, and I go to slide through. But at the same time, the truck is going down. But I feel somebody pulling me up, but it's like a, it's like a black hole. It's like a vacuum when a truck is yeah. like, it, it was so strong going under that it pulled like my shorts off. It pulled my shoes off. Like it was pulling me under and I feel somebody pull me out. So when the truck goes under and I come up in my mind, I'm still running though. So like I start gasping for air. Um, I'm swimming in the water in the middle of this canal. I look across the canal bank, I see cop lights over there. I look behind me, I see cop lights, but in my mind, I'm still running from the cops. So I start swimming. I realized that the current was super strong. I was in shock and I was like, I can't do this. So now I finally get to a point where I'm like, all right, I give up. I surrender, I surrender. I put my hands in the air like I'm done, but I'm trying to swim at the same time. And I see a spotlight, like a Q-beam shining on me. Well, I start swimming towards this spotlight where the Q-beam is because it's so pitch black out. I'm in the middle of this canal in the middle of the night, and uh, all I can see is the lights. So I'm swimming towards this Q-beam. I get up on shore, and it's a steep canal bank, and the grass is super tall. And um, I swim up on shore. I get up the canal bank, the side of the canal bank, and I black out. And when I wake up, it's the next day but I'm still in that same exact spot. So I'm on the side of this canal bank. I'm covered in blood. I got, my whole face is like swollen. My hand is sliced open, my everything. I, all I have on is a t-shirt and boxer briefs because it ripped my shorts off, the current did. I had a pair of Chuck Taylors on, it ripped my shoes off. My foot's filleted open, my whole leg's filleted open. Like I'm just covered in blood, screaming on the side of, the, on the side of this canal bank. I wait when, when, I, when I'm screaming, I'm waiting there on the, on the side of the canal bank. I still could have got away at this point, but my mind's not even thinking like now. Now, I'm like, I'm trying to get to the hospital. Well, I start screaming at the top of my lungs. Here comes an ambulance and a cop car coming up. And they get out, but they're looking into the water. So they hear me screaming, and they finally they walk over me while I'm cussing them out. I'm like, you MFers left me here for dead. I can't believe you. Uh I need to get to the hospital. I need somebody to help me now. Like, and the cop looked at me and said, what do you mean we left you for dead? I'm like, you pulled me out of that truck and you left me here for dead. I was like, somebody needs to get me to the hospital. And they were like, you pulled, you pulled a Houdini. We thought you disappeared. Like we had no idea that you were on the side of this canal bank. And I was like, what brought you here to this spot then? How, you know, like what would bring you back here? And they said that there was a lady at the house on the end of the road that called and said that there was this white male out here covered in blood screaming at the top of his lungs. But they kept asking me who was driving. And I was so green to the system at that time. I was like, I was driving. Who the hell else was driving? You know, not realizing the whole time I was incriminating myself because according to them, they had no idea who was driving the vehicle. So they ended up putting me on a stretcher. They take me to the hospital. Um, they didn't arrest me at first. They just kept interrogating me but i didn't know they were interrogating me and i admitted to everything that i did you know and um so 
my dad comes to the hospital and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, she was getting ready to come to the hospital. And as she was on her way, the police came and they arrested me. Dang. So they put me under arrest for two burglary of occupied dwellings because I went back to that house twice. Um, they gave me aggravated fleeing and looting, aggravated assault on the officer because they said when my vehicle was pointing in his direction, he was in fear of his life, which I can I can understand that. You know, thank God I didn't kill anybody else. I didn't hurt anybody else. Like it could have been so much worse, you know, and that I'm still alive, you know, that they didn't. They chose not to shoot at me or they chose, you know, that I was able to make it out of that canal. Um, and still to this day, like, I don't know. I know somebody pulled me out. Like, I felt that. And they say that, they, you know, they didn't. My dad still believes that they had something to do with it. But it was just a crazy story, like, when it all yeah, happened. That, that's what I was literally finna ask you, because I guess when you went into the camper shell the first time from the truck, you said that you felt someone pull you. And then yeah. going out of the truck. Uh, to be completely out, you felt someone that pulled you. Yeah. And I swam towards a light, which I thought was like a Q beam, like a spotlight yeah. shining in the water. And they swear that they this never, that they didn't pull me out, that that didn't happen. And that when I woke up the next day on the side of that canal bank, that a lady called and that's what brought them there. I don't, I don't know if you believe in Jesus or not, baby, but yeah, as right? angels, so as angels. I in God, and that was kind of like my coming to God moment, which yeah. I didn't before, you know, and that made me believe, okay, like something like there was a plan for my life, like for that, for me to survive that and uh, for that to happen. Like I, I definitely, I didn't believe before, but that made me believe. Um, but I'd like to say that that was like my wake up call, but it wasn't, you know, it was for a while, but I still never got the help that I needed. So I still had a lot of childhood trauma. I needed therapy. I needed so much more help that, I wasn't able to get. They sentenced me to to five years. They gave me the minimum. What I scored out to was fifty two point six months and a year house arrest for that. So I went to prison for the first time, and um, I was twenty six. And the judge told me, you know, somebody that with these amount of charges, they need to see the inside of a prison. Like all my life, people have been trying to protect me because of baseball and trying to stop me from going to prison or jail. But I had never got treatment and I'd never, you know, that was never an option. So it went from nothing to, to prison, like pretty fast, you know. Yeah. But there was a lot of little arrests in between disorderly intoxication, public, you know, intoxication, stuff like that. Um, but I never got the help along the way for any of that. Dude, so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I just, nothing. It's just. In my mind, I'm still like focused on you getting out of that truck and then the process leading up to where you go to jail. And yeah. I, I've been in a situation before to where like I put myself in it a hundred percent when I was younger, and it was where that time period right there in between, I just felt like I've lived it before to where you could have made things right, you could have right you could have took some mistakes and turned them around or whatever but you didn't mm -hmm. until you hit jail yeah rock bottom and i had to yeah. hit it more than once and that's that's it the sad part is that but i needed help though and that was the thing is like i needed access i needed medication i needed a doctor like i had some real traumatic issues i had a lot of stuff that i didn't know how to work through i didn't know how to cope you know i had abandonment issues with my mom i had 
uh, molestation issues from when I was younger. You know, I had a lot of undealt with trauma that I didn't know how to handle and uh, not having any communication in my household and expected to just suck it up. And I went to some 12 step meetings and stuff like that. And it was a good start. It was an, it was something, but it wasn't enough. Like in 12 step meetings, they talk about that outside help. Like I needed that outside help as well. And, um, and I would do good for a while because in my heart, I wanted to be a good person, you know, like nobody, when I was a young kid, I didn't raise my hand and say, I want to grow up to be a convicted felon, a career criminal and a drug addict that loses everything, you know, like, I'm not proud of that. Like it's, it's the worst feeling in the world that to live with that guilt and that shame to know everything I could have had that I threw away yeah, because but, of an illness, yeah, you know? Yeah. But the way that I reason out anything in life mm -hmm. is you'll, you will end up being special and you will end up making a difference in someone's life because of you, what you've been through and what mm -hmm. you're doing now. If you would have just been a professional baseball player, you would have just been another professional baseball player. Like, yeah. I think that it's the worst days of our life that make us the best people. I, I, I yeah. think, I think like even I'm, I'm a suicide survivor from like 2010. I talk okay. about it a lot on this show. Mental health and everything is just so is so important to me, mm -hmm. and. I don't think I'm the person that the good Lord wanted me to be or what the world needs me to be. If I didn't go through that hard time of my life. Yeah. And so like, even with you, man, I mean, it's, I know you probably wish that you could have still play. I mean, who the hell wouldn't want to be a major league baseball right? player? I mean, I, <laughs> I grew up with the same dream. I just didn't have the talent that, you, <laughs> that a yeah. lot of people have. Right. But I wouldn't have been special. I mean, I don't, sometimes a lot of people in life look for their purpose in life, but what if your purpose is you? What if, what if it's the bad things that, that have happened to you that the good Lord allowed to happen to you to make you the person that you are today, because what you've been through is going to change somebody else's life and help somebody. I think that's way more important than ever winning a world series or anything like that. No. And I agree. I believe that, you know, that pain is, turned into, you know, finally, I feel like I have purpose for the pain because if you don't have it, like, it's like, what is there? Like, you know, the test, like they say, test becomes the testimony, the mess becomes the message. And, and, um, and that's kind of my hope is that my story will positively impact someone, uh, especially our youth, especially maybe some younger athletes to not make the same decisions that I had, or if they have issues to speak up and, and don't be afraid to, to make yourself vulnerable and speak out because that was the other thing is like, nope, nobody wants to make themselves vulnerable when yeah. you're a young man. Like you can't talk about your feelings or emotions or things that are hurting you or, you know, well, that, because that's especially our generation, you know, that might be the most important thing that you're doing. So yeah. in my mind, what I have tried to do with everything that I've been given and what I've been through is I try to take the taboo. I want to take the taboo out of mental health. I want to take the taboo out of being in that dark place in your life. Mm -hmm. I want to take the taboo out of talking about uh, having those just horrible thoughts to where you don't want to be here anymore. And I think yeah. the more that we talk about it and the more that you're open about your story or I'm open about mine or any men in particular, because like you said, we're especially our generation. We're taught to put fucking dirt on it, not cry and move the fuck yep. on yeah, like that's Quit that's, whining, tough it up. Yeah. 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 Like, and that's not the case. That is yeah. not at all. You if you've been through 
and it sounds like you've been through a lot of rough stuff like I have when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. You are supposed to have someone to talk to about it. I really don't believe in therapists, to be honest with you, but yeah. I believe in support systems. I believe in having conversations with people that have been through the same thing that you've been through to where you, I always say fucked up people don't judge fucked up people. And it makes you feel less fucked up. Like it makes you feel better about yourself talking to someone who made it. Yeah. But I do want to tell you therapy saved my life. Therapy right, well, was it did work for me, and I and I was Good. the same person. I was very anti-therapy for a very long time. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I just need God and a support system, and I got this. But I will say therapy was good because it allowed me that one-on-one -on -one conversation. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't always have to be with a licensed therapist. You could get yeah. that with, you know, a confidant or somebody. But therapy did me some real good. And, and that's ultimately, I mean, my faith – you know, of where I stand with my faith and my relationships and my support system. But that therapy was definitely one of the missing pieces that, that I needed. Well, and early on medication, you know, I needed oh, to be yeah. stabilized, you know, uh, and a lot of, I was anti-medication and I was anti-therapy. And I finally got to a stage in my life where I was like, you know what, I've tried everything my way. I'm just going to do whatever y'all tell me to do. Yeah. And once I got to that place of surrendering is where I finally I was able to to get some hope and change, you know. Well, keep um, going with the next part of it. I, I want to hear where you're at. Now, I got to change okay. camera batteries, but I'm still listening. So just keep rolling. Okay. So, yeah, um, got out of prison. I started working in treatment. Uh, ended up getting a girl pregnant that I thought it was the Christian thing to do that I needed to marry her. And, um, at the time, because I was getting really deep into my faith, but it was more religious and it wasn't spiritual and it wasn't based on realness and a relationship. And uh, so needless to say, that relationship didn't work out, um, but we ended up having a son together. And I relapsed right around the time that she, our, our son was about to be born. And um, she ended up kicking me out, rightfully so, because I was a mess. And so I... Um, I end up relapsing and she kicks me out. So now I got, really got nowhere to go. And my dad is telling me I can go to the house. And I had a really good job at this time. Life was really good. Even after getting out of prison, I started going really well. And uh, and I and started to lose it quickly. Just, just that fast when I relapsed. Um, so my dad's like, you can go to the house. You can shower. You can eat there. But just be gone before your mom comes home, because my mom didn't like that. My dad was an enabler <clears throat> and she didn't like that. I relapsed and I've got, you know, my wife at this time is, you know, eight, nine months pregnant. And, you know, there was a lot of hard feelings with my mom and my wife and my dad, again, trying to protect me and enable me. So one day she comes home and I'm there. I'm leaving the house. And I had taken a few things from their house and I pawned it for drugs. And uh, my dad was always my fallback because my dad's like, just do whatever you want. And, you know, I'm not going to get you in trouble. I'd rather you do something for me instead of going out there and robbing somebody or doing something crazy and getting yourself in trouble. Well, mom put her foot down and she wasn't having that. Right. So she calls the cops with every intention of getting me help. Well, 
me already having a record and being in prison, they charged me with a burglary at my parents' house. And it was kind of a, a big ordeal because my dad said I could be there, but my stepmom said I couldn't. My stepmom's telling them that my dad's an enabler and that he's just protecting me, that, you know, I'm not supposed to be there. Now it's causing a fight with them and my family, and it's a big ordeal. So I'm locked up. I'm in the county jail. Um, they're thinking it's just going to be a family ordeal. This you know, to go away. Right. It was a couple hundred dollars worth of stuff. It's not a big deal to, you know, to them, but I'm telling them. And at this point I was doing a lot of public speaking and stuff for like the sheriff's department and the public defender's office. And I felt like when I relapsed because they're elected officials, they had to like back away from me. And um, so I feel like that was, that kind of played a role in it too. I was like, I feel like the state's really going to come after me and try to make an example out of me. Oh yeah, and I'm and I'm telling my dad that, and he's like, "No, no, this is a family ordeal." Um, I said you could be there. I was like, "Dad, a burglary is like a big deal on your record," and I already went to prison for that, even though that one was at my friend's house. So, like, not that I'm sitting here trying to justify it, but the circumstances of my cases were like people that I knew, um, people that were really just trying to protect me from addiction, and called the cops for intervention, and ultimately. You know, prison because I got that whole high speed chase that first time. And then this time, um, the state says 15 years. And I tell my dad that and he's like, no way. So he, at first he didn't bond me out because he wanted me to sober up. So I sat in jail for like eight, nine months. But I went through like a drug program in jail. And um, so my dad bonds me out. My mom went and dropped the charges. She's like, no, we don't want to go forward with this. You know, this is a family issue. That's it. So she signs all the paperwork to drop the charges. You know, I start working. Everything's good. But the state wouldn't drop the charges. So the state told my mom that you're not the victim. Uh, the state of Florida is. You are now our star witness. He didn't commit a crime against you. He committed a crime against the state of Florida. And that's why it says the state of Florida versus whatever the defendant's name in my situation, Daniel Collins. You know, um, so the state pursues this charge. Now they come at me later on and they say seven years. And I'm like, no way. Like, I'm not going to do seven years for stealing a couple hundred dollars from my parents' house, which technically my dad said I could have it, whether he's enabling me or not. Like, this is a civil case. This isn't a criminal case. You know, in my head, I'm trying to rationalize and justify all this. Um, and I think that's where I kind of recognize my privilege a little bit and how much like my actions in the way I perceive myself and the way my actions spoke where they weren't in alignment, you know, like I was just, I wasn't the person that I thought I was. So they offer me seven years. I tell them, no, now I changed my mind. I'm like, I'm going to take it, forget it. I'm just going to go ahead and take it. And I go back to the attorney. I said, is that seven years still there? And they said, no, now it's seven years and they want five years probation. Oof. So I get back with my wife, which was my girlfriend at the time, the woman I'm with now. And we start we started dating when I got out of the county jail. So I'm telling her, it's like, I'm look, I'm about to go to prison. She was like, no, no, this is just a family ordeal. This will go away. My dad's saying it. My mom's saying it. I'm like, I'm telling you, it's not like you don't understand how the system works. Like this is not going away. And if I go to trial and I lose, I'm going to get 40 years. Like. Yeah. Because the way the system works is that you have a right to speedy trial in theory, but in practice, if you exercise that right and you lose, you will be punished for taking it to trial. 
Yeah, I've always Anybody thought who- I've always thought that was the biggest load of shit, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like they're punishing you because you're taking up more of their time. Yeah, and that, and you're costing the state money. Yeah. So but I had a solid case. Like a jury would have really been like, hmm, well, I mean, the theft charges, yeah, but a burglary, the burglary is what gave me all my points. And the burglary was like the most questionable because technically my dad said I and he said it under oath that I could have I could be in the house and I could have anything in the house. Right. So the state tried to trip him up by saying this. They said, so what you're telling me, they told my dad in depositions, what you're telling me is that it's okay for your son to come here, take your car and go sell it for drugs. And uh, my dad said, no, that's not okay." And she said, see, see what my dad said, no, 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 you're misunderstanding me. That's never okay because I don't want my son on drugs doing whatever he has to do for drugs. But for under the law for criminal, absolutely it's okay because I would never press charges on my son. So that's the way it kind of got presented. Now, going in from in front of a jury, it could have went either way. And and I didn't want to take that chance because absolutely if I lost, not. Yeah. Absolutely if I lost not. trial with my record and and this was the other thing, is like I already carried enough guilt and shame because when I'm clean and I'm not in active addiction. I carry a lot of guilt and shame because yeah. I do not want to be that person, you know? And that's, it's like a, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, just completely two different people. So the other thing I didn't want to do is put my parents on the stand, you know, like I already put them through enough. I have a sister, you know, I drug my family through so much mud that I did not want to, to bear to, to see them have to go through that again and to have to get on the stand and testify against their son because the state was going to subpoena them. They, they were not letting this go. So finally, against everybody else's will, I went and signed the deal. I said, I'm signing the, the deal. So I signed the seven years, five years probation. And I went to prison. And um, this time it was a lot different than the first time. This time I got caught up in the subculture of prison. You know, I'd like to say that I kept it clean and got it all together. But no, like I I fell victim to being caught up in the underworld of prison. And I got involved in a lot of things that I shouldn't have got involved with. And um and that's where it got crazy for me. Um, right around the time that Trump was elected and I thought our nation was under attack and being a straight white Christian male that um, we were being discriminated against. And it really, with all the, the rhetoric that was going on in the prison from like white supremacists in there and the organization, um, I ended up joining the white, uh, a white supremacist organization in prison, unforgiven. And um, and what's crazy is that I did almost 10 years in prison. So my first seven years, I never joined a gang. I just kind of did my time, kept, you know, did what I wanted to do. And and I, I never had any issues. You know, I was first of all, I was always at work camps because I was a low level custody. And two, like I was an athlete. So like I was always on the basketball court. I was on the softball field. Like, you know, I just got along with people and in, in prison, if you know how to carry yourself in, in, in a certain way, you're not going to have issues, you know, especially Florida and work camps. But when you start getting involved in the subculture and the economics of things, then you're not immune to whatever, you know, things can happen. And that started to happen for me my second time around. But without getting into crazy details with that, but um, but I, I joined that gang towards the end of my second bid because of my politics and I was a diehard conservative. And I feel like, like you said, like Trump emboldened people to normalize just being whatever it was that you are already were. 
And that's what he did for me. Like all that was already in me. So like the racism for me wasn't that I was anti other races, and especially in prison, like most prisons, gangs, they're not anti other people. They're just pro their people. They're, for, you know, but historically speaking to be pro white in America is to be anti black, you know, to be white pride is to be racist, you know? And, um, and I, I won't say that I was fully ignorant, but I didn't understand the depth. I wasn't fully educated on white supremacy in America, on black history in America. I had no formal education on any of that. You know, I always got the whitewashing of history um, through our education system and here in Florida. So when I joined this organization, but I was friends with a, a guy by the name of Rashawn Clark, who happened to be a black Muslim and him and I were really good friends. But when Trump was running for president, I kept telling him, like, this is the best thing that could happen to black people. And black people just need to vote for Trump and get off the Democratic plantation. I had got the Candace Owens book at that time, Blackout. And I was using that to kind of uh, campaign on Trump's behalf to people in prison because, like, I was really political in there. I was talking about politics all the time and I was trying to educate people, you know, quote unquote. And um, and I was using the Candace Owens book and I was really big with Trump and I got every book that was written on Trump sent in and I would read it. And uh, this guy introduced me to the 13th Amendment. And he told me he's like, you're a constitutionalist, right? He's like, would you agree with slavery being in the 13th Amendment still? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said the abolishment of slavery, except when punishment for a crime. And I was like holy shit, we really do have slavery written into the Constitution still. It's just under the guise of crime. Well, think about all the things people get locked up for these days. You know, like I was sitting in prison for seven years for a burglary at my parents' house, you know. And uh, so I started to go down that rabbit hole. I was like, okay, I'm going to entertain this. So I read, he told me to read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And I read that book and it forever changed my life. Uh, when I read the stats and being in prison and stuff like that, and I saw one in three black males carry a convicted felon label in America today. And to think that from 1960s or 1970 to now, we've had a 700% increase in our prison population. So the end, the dismantling of the Jim Crow era, Jim Crow laws, the Jim Crow segregation, we've gone from 300,000 inmates to as high as 2.3 million. One in three black males carry the convicted felon label. Well, what does a convicted felon label mean in America today? I'm a convicted felon. I am too. It means that you could be discriminated against for housing. You could be yep. discriminated against for employment. You could be discriminated against for education, yep. for financing, anything. You know, like Dang. literally people have the right to turn you down. Yeah, you can't own a firearm where I'm at. can't own a firearm. Yeah, yeah. I can't have my Second Amendment rights. So... I started thinking about all those barriers. I can't vote. I still can't vote in Florida. So I was like, well, who else faced those same barriers? Black people during Jim Crow. Yeah. And I said, is it a coincidence that one in three black males carry convicted felon label? Now, all this time, I used to always say, well, black people just need to get it together. You know, stop committing black on black crime. Stop being so violent. Stop selling drugs. You know, this was my perception of black people, right? And I was like, is it a coincidence that one in three black males carry convicted felon label that we've had a 700 percent increase in our prison population since the dismantling of Jim Crow segregation? And 
it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, wow, like this whole time, I just always thought it was a personal accountability. And of course, personal accountability is important. If I don't put myself in those situations, I won't be in trouble. I won't get arrested. But once you get trapped in that system, and I've been there, and I've seen what it's like, and if some people are introduced to that system as kids in school, the school to prison pipeline is real, or people don't have access to, uh, you know, we, we criminalize poverty, we criminalize mental health, we criminalize substance abuse, and, uh, and it disproportionately impacts certain communities. And the black community is disproportionately impacted financially. It, you know, like, They've been robbed of generational wealth because of, of a lot of various reasons, you know, housing and a bunch of different reasons. So it just started to change my perspective and for me to see things in a different light. So I went from like this diehard conservative white supremacist mentality in prison to like, OK, like I need to look at the world in a completely different perspective. Absolutely. But I will say this. I started to get extreme the other way. And that's the attic <laughs> in me, you know, where I was super confrontational and I was this moral, you know, superior, like morally superior. And you got to get it this way or, you know, the highway type of thing. And that was dangerous for me, too. So and my wife had to check me a bunch of times. And that's, you know, even with my content now, I get a lot of stuff because I talk, you know, it's controversial, but you can not get to know somebody in three minute videos or absolutely, one minute videos. Absolutely not. And you'll never know their personality in that amount of time. Yeah. So, and that's like, even if people, don't, and I tell people that on my page all the time, like if you come to my page, and you don't agree with my content, that's okay. Like, I'm not going to belittle you. I'm not going to call you names. I'm going to have a conversation with you because I want you to get enlightened and educated the way I did. Because to me, the way to unity and solidarity is to understand Black history in its historical context, if we really want it to bridge the, the racial gap and build meaningful relationships between white and black people. But I think a lot of white people confuse interpersonal racism with institutional racism, and they're not the same. Just because you don't experience racism in your personal life or you're not personally explicitly racist doesn't mean it doesn't happen on an institutional level and just the fact that one in three black males carry convicted felon labels will tell you a lot about institutional racism is it that black people are just inherently evil and prone they had the proclivity to commit more crime or is there a more nefarious thing at play that we don't see whether it's intentional or not it's still happening you know I, I and that's i also yeah, think ahead. i also think with that though there's a lot of everything that you just said i agree with a hundred percent I think, though, that the problem with the one in three, you said it's one in three, right? One in three. I, okay. I also think that there is a subculture of, of any, of white folks, black folks, whatever, that has made it cool to break the law. Like, even, even if you want to look at people with mining your skin tone, we grew mm -hmm. up idolizing Jesse James and yeah. outlaws and stuff like that. I think that we have got away with more, especially in my small town where mm -hmm. I grew up. Dude, I've been in trouble with the law. I should have had the book thrown at me, but because yeah. of family members, I got out of shit, right? Like I, but there, I should have. That's, that's your have. privilege. Yeah, it's you my know? privilege. But privilege. There, there are certain people that, and I, like I said, I'm not putting this on a race. I'm putting this on a yeah. subculture of everybody that, it's cool to break the law, but then they want to fuss about it when they get punished. 
Like there are some people that absolutely do not deserve to be in jail. There are a lot of yeah. people that like, especially if you look back at the nineties when they changed like the, what is it? The three strike, it's not even a three strike law no more with the drugs that, yeah. that, that it used to be. I can't remember. Biden was even part of it back then. Well, in the 94 crime bill, he definitely yeah, the crime bill. I couldn't remember. He, I couldn't... he co-authored the 86 Reagan bill too, though. He was part of that too. So yeah, I, could, Reagan I, couldn't, and... I couldn't remember yeah, exactly what bills. it was called. But, like, there's no reason why somebody had a small amount of drugs on them. They should have done that amount of time. There's, like, yeah. and also, too, I don't know if it was this way for you, but we shouldn't have a system that when you go to jail or when you go to prison, when you get out, you're not giving help getting a job and get on your feet because all you're doing is making it to where I've done hurt a hundred different ways where I can go make the money to feed my family and all this other kind of shit. Once you get yeah. put on probation, when you get home from a place like that, they're the worst people to me almost because they're pushing you to get a job that you can't take care of your family, but they're also taking your money every single month restitution, yeah. whatever you should pay back when you, when you commit a crime, I'm not saying you shouldn't, yeah. but they're committing just this cycle of, oh, we're just a revolving door of felons. It's like yeah. once you fuck up, they never want to forgive you. Well, and that's the part, that's the argument that I make is that you get trapped in that vicious cycle of that yeah. system to where it's not meant, and it's that's where that prison industrial complex, it values profits over people. Like yeah. that convicted felon label is the biggest thing because that is a forever label you are punished for the rest of your life with that label. And if one in three black males carry that label, it's one in 17 white males, one in six Hispanic males. So I got that label. Uh, it's I couldn't get a job at Target. I couldn't get a job at Home Depot. I applied. And it's not that I don't have the skill set or the aptitude to work there. It's just because I had this convicted felon label. And I'm not even a violent offender. But so that label follows you for the rest of your life. And it makes it hard for you to participate in society the way a normal citizen would. Right now, I live in a nice gated community and I have an HOA. Had I, they did the background check on me like they're doing now, I wouldn't even be able to live in the house that I live in. So, and it was by design meant to exclude, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, if absolutely. I, you want me to come out and be a better criminal or a good neighbor? And I'm not yeah. making excuses for people's behavior. And I don't want anybody to ever get that idea. When I advocate for a more just system, it's not that I'm excusing uh, crime. Crime needs to be addressed. I'm an abolitionist at heart. I'd like to be in a place in the world. And I know I'm an idealist and, and I dream big. But it, they say if you don't dream, if your dreams are small enough for them to be solved in your lifetime, you're not dreaming big enough. And I truly believe that. I'm a, I'm such a, a, an idealist that I dream of a world where cops and prisons aren't even needed. And I know that sounds insane to people, but we should always be striving to create a society that produces less crime. Well, how do we do that? We address the issues that lead to crime, such as poverty, mental health, substance abuse. You know, get on the front end. Everything we do in the United States is is it's post-traumatic. It's post-after. Post, you know, we don't do anything preventative. Like uh, even police, like police don't solve the crimes that need to be solved. And I'm not anti-police. I don't like the institution of it because I don't feel like it does what we need it to do. But obviously you can't have a world without law some sort of law in order. And I hate using that rhetoric, but like you got to, you can't have chaos. And I get that, yeah. you know, um, 
but we should always have be moving to create a society that that produces less crime. Police only solve fifty percent of murders. Probably, you know, the most needed crime to be solved. That and then sex offenders. They, you know, very rarely do those crimes even get reported the way they need to be reported. But on top of that, they don't solve and they don't prevent crime. So if they don't prevent and they don't solve crime, the crimes that need to be solved, like the majority of people are being arrested, they're drug related, you know, so in some shape, form, or fashion, or or speeding tickets, like that's the purpose they serve to raise money for the, the local community. But and I'm not anti-police and I and I'm I did a podcast with the police officer before too to tell him, you know, like I'm all about humanizing the badge. Like who am I to judge anybody? I just I, I I'm all about advocating for better systems and better ways. And well, and I think we could get so much better with our criminal justice system, treat people with dignity and respect as human beings. Like Treat everybody as if they were your child, you know, and get past even if they can once they've committed a crime. This is a big thing in Florida. There's a growing trend in Florida for Florida sheriffs to get on social media and kind of dog the people they arrest. Brady yeah. Judd does it. Carmen Marcin. They do it like and and I get it because they're they're building their their brand and their awareness and trying to raise funds for whatever they got. going. But this is the issue I have with this. Once you apprehend somebody. It's your responsibility to restore them the best we know how to create for public safety, right? It should be all about public safety. So restorative justice is going to restore that person to themselves, to their family, and to their community. And once we apprehend somebody and we stop the threat, and I don't care what crime they committed, our responsibility from that point on is to rehabilitate them, especially if we're going to be releasing them back to society, like 95% of inmates. 95% of inmates will be released to society one day. Yeah, it's We want them to be better criminals or good neighbors, you it's, know? It's literally called Department of Corrections. Like, yeah. it's, you're supposed to correct the issue to when somebody comes back out into society, they learned a lesson and they know not what to do or know yeah. what not to do. And, man – that is probably one of the biggest things I've never had anybody to be able to talk to with about this on the show Yeah, is I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. I haven't done hard time. I did 60 days in a rehab detention center first time. And I did 90 the second time, but that space in between, if I was even given a chance to yeah. make situations right, to have a good job, to do whatever, I would have never gotten in trouble the second time. I, yeah. I would have, I would have never, and I just don't think that the people that are in charge of our judicial system really give a shit about the everyday person about us yeah. correcting our problems. But God forbid some fucking guy on wall street steals $10 billion from somebody. Or they get a slap yeah. on the wrist. It's, the a wrist. Fucking, yeah. it's a fucking joke. And I, I think that was the biggest reason why I walked away from my conservative beliefs, because I felt like so many people on the right. And this was my my experience. And I'm not saying this is true for everybody, but my family and my friends. They were always so judgmental to incarcerated people, including myself, but even me, they would give me a little bit of a pass. But and they would put me in a different group like I'm not like the rest of those people. But like at the end of the day, we're all human beings. And of course we need we don't we need some law and order and i'm not saying and when i say even when i when people talk about defund the police it's not about having no police department and just taking all the money away it's just about investing in the community you know divest invest into the community but like so 
my biggest issue was the people on the right didn't want to look at that through a different lens and they didn't want to, they didn't believe in rehabilitation. This was just my experience. A lot of the things that I would, it was always that law and order. We back the blue. Don't do the time, you know, don't commit the crime. Or if you can't do the time, don't commit the crime. You know, the favorite sayings that you hear everybody. Yeah. And, and that's, it's, that's such a simple response. Of course, you know, don't commit the crime. Like, of course, you know, that's the easiest thing in the world that to say, you know, but in reality, when that bullet's already out of the gun, yeah. let's start to address these issues and the revolving door, the cycle. And, and that convicted felon label is one of them, you and know? You, and you know better than I do. I had a really cool security, not security guard, uh, whatever you call it, uh, prison guard, whatever they're yeah. called, where I the fuck I was at. I had a really yeah. cool one. And he literally told me, the only difference between you and me is that you got caught doing Sorry. your shit and I didn't. Yeah. And that, that's the thing, like how anybody can sit here and say, everybody has broke a law at some point in their time. It's just the majority of these people that have the mindset that you were just talking about. They've never mm -hmm. been caught and they've never had to be punished. So they don't know. Um, there are some things that are unforgivable, murder, unforgivable, like, if you touch a child, I'll be honest with you. I've never heard of somebody who's hurt a child in any way, shape, or form rehabilitating. I think we need a tall tree and a short rope with a, a fucking <laughs> predator. I, I, I do. But everything besides that, you're literally turning your back on so many people that just need an honest second chance. That yeah. is it. They just, they just need somebody to believe in them and say, hey, Let's set you up to where you're not in a position where you have to make that mistake again. And these people just don't get it. They think that, oh, we're just born bad or they're always going to fuck up or nothing. It usually takes someone kind and someone who, like you, that has been in that position to say, okay, let's, let's help right this wrong. Instead of mm -hmm. the people who think that they're holier than thou, like the ones that they, they, they're the only ones that don't believe in forgiveness in my mind. Yeah. Well, and, and, and a lot of times, like I come from a Christian background, my Christian conservative beliefs, right? I mean, if you look at biblically speaking, Moses was a murderer. He killed the Egyptian. You look at David who sent his person on the front line after committing adultery, you know, like to be killed. Like these stories are in the Bible. So even mur like I've met murderers that, create did some bad made a horrible decision when they were 16 17 years old they've owned it not saying that you know and they've turned their lives around you know norway's got a system that where the most amount of time you can get is 21 years no matter what crime you commit because and then they rehabilitate you it's mandatory that you get rehabilitated they treat you like a human being and at the end of the 21 years if say you committed a heinous crime uh you know like murder somebody then if they don't feel like you've been rehabilitated, you automatically get another five years and you go through that process and they keep doing that. Right. But the bigger picture is now you start to create a society that produces less of this stuff. There's a reason why America has the number one amount of serial killers in the world or the number one amount of school shootings in the world. You know, there's a reason why we have that. And it's because we don't address the issues that, that create that. And, and it's a lot more. But um, I always want to operate from a position. If I want to be like Jesus and I want to be a true Christian, I'm always going to operate from that position of unconditional love, no matter what. And you have to. 
and and I don't care what crime they committed, and I and I hate the idea of a murderer. And I honestly, definitely, with sex offenders, like you touch a child, like so I would want to kill you myself. Period. Yeah. You know, like if I caught you in the act of that, like yeah. I, I would. You know what I mean? Point blank. Period. But if we believe in a justice system, and if we're going to release these people, and a lot of the times those people get less time than other people do, which is crazy. But um, if we're going to be releasing people back into society, we have to rehabilitate them. We have to. It is our responsibility. Our system can't be just punitive. The punishment is separation from society. You get a time out from society. You're away from your family, your job, your loved ones. Anything beyond that is excessive. Like some people believe in hard labor. I hear it all the time. Or they get three hots in a cot. And there's so much more depth that I could talk on the prison system that so many people are just uneducated on that they don't know. Um, But the fact that inmates, like in Florida, we don't make any money. But there's many inmates that work for private jobs. Like in Florida, they have Pride. And Pride is a private company that, you know, has real contracts with people on the streets. They pay inmates 25 cents an hour, but by law, they have to pay inmates minimum wage for their labor because they're profiting off their labor. Well, they don't pay the inmates to minimum wage, but the state still gets that money. They pay the state the money. The state charges them room and board. I just, you're also doc- getting- I just watched a documentary on how fucked up that is. Yeah, but you're still getting taxpayer money. Taxpayers will be like, well, my money's paying for their, their, uh, they're three hots in a cot in their healthcare. Well, technically, they're working and they're profiting off their labor. So they're and they're using that money towards their room and board because they have to pay a minimum wage. And there's many states that are like that. Florida, it's not as much because they don't have a whole lot of private jobs in Florida prisons. Uh, Pride is like the only one. And then you've got like Airmark and keep like different Airmark, I think, is like the food service and stuff like that. Um, but if you're like a kitchen worker, you're not getting paid. You know, there's a lot of jobs you're not getting paid. But um, yeah, like I just I'm a major advocate for creating a better society. But a lot of times it's hard to get that in, you know, a, a quick conversation because people automatically just think that I'm delusional or, you know, he's he's radical leftist or he's this yeah. or he's that. And I'm like, just give me a chance to have a conversation with me. And I, I believe I could impact people's minds and hearts. You know, yeah, I don't um, I don't think yeah. you're a radical leftist at all. I yeah. think you are someone that has had the benefit of being at the top and the bottom yeah. and understanding both parts of it to where most people will never understand the other side of the railroad tracks. So yeah. there, there's some people that won't get it and you wanting a better society. It's not like you're, it's funny to hear you talk about in a way, because a lot of the shit that you say is a lot of shit that I think. Yeah. And I've talked about this with certain people before, but never on the show. But it's where we want it to be where everyone is happy, not just the rich man, not just the poor man. We're not talking yeah. about taking from the rich and giving to the poor. We're talking about everybody being able to live by their means and having it to where you you don't want for more because you don't need more. You've got exactly what you need. And you don't have to be sitting there. Like one of the huge things I have a problem with um, is uh, we're like, I can't remember the actual word. And I'm not saying, because if I say it wrong, it's going to be all fucked up because the wrong word means something else. Yeah. It's where like in a town, they'll knock down the 
the old trashy houses and they'll build these skyscrapers next to them. Gentrified. Gentrified, yeah. Gen yeah. I, I was going to say gentrification, but thank you yeah. for doing gentrified. I knew it was close <laughs> to the other one. So yeah. like, I've never understood how people expect someone who has worked their whole life and they're living in a, a lower income house to get up every single day and there's a fucking million dollar home that their house is in the shadow of and not expect them to some way or another get envious, get mad, to want more, to where you end up breaking the law because you don't have your means. I'm not talking about separating people by their means or like a caste system or anything yeah. like that. I'm talking about the even the playing field, but you have to work for work for it. Yeah. Like, and that I think that's kind of where you're going with it. Absolutely. Yeah, not no handouts. Nobody access to opportunities. Yes, yeah, access to opportunity. That's a great opportunities for everybody, in, including people like me that I've been in trouble. Like yeah. I, I, I would love to be a lawyer right now, you know, but I I would have to jump through so many hoops. I'm still gonna try it, you know, but I gotta build 10 years of just credibility of no trouble at all and be doing, you know, admirable things in the community to even be considered. And I get that because you got to have credibility. There's some positions and some jobs where, okay, you got to earn that trust back. And, oh, yeah. And, and I'm willing to put in the work to earn the trust. I just ask to give me the opportunity to show, you know. Um, and if a clean slate is what, if I did my pay my debt to society, then that's what it is. You know, I paid my debt to society and uh, and I've done my time. But give me the opportunity to to show you that I'm changed. Like if we really believe in redemption, like we say we do. And we, we believe in second chances and justice, like we say we do, then then we would do that. But um, there's just, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I think a lot of people want the same thing. They just have a different idea of how to get there, you know, and their idea of how to get there is completely different than, than someone else's. But let's be real, too. Like, this whole idea of meritocracy can be an illusion. So not everybody has the same marketable skills. Let's, you know, you know what I mean? Like, not everybody has the ability, the aptitude to do certain things. And um, and some people just aren't equipped with the ability to 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 earn a, a certain amount of, you know what I mean? Because yeah. there's certain jobs that are just, that's what they pay. Like, you know what I mean? That's just what it's going to be. The the skill that it requires, and that's the ability that they have. And But they're giving it everything they have. But they'll never have the opportunity to earn more money because of where that job and where they're relegated to, you know what I mean? And that's just, yeah. and no matter how hard they try, no matter how hard they work, that's just what it's going to be. And, um, and that's, it sucks, you know, because in an ideal world, in a perfect world, everybody would do everything out of the goodness of their heart and they wouldn't be based on money. It would just be based on, I'm, if I'm going to be a janitor, I'm going to be the best janitor I can be because yeah. that's what I want to be. If I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be the best doctor because that's what I want to be. And I'm so passionate about being a doctor. And I'm not going to be motivated by money, but that's a utopia, you know, heaven on earth. Well, it, it would be, it would be a whole lot simpler if like somebody like you or somebody like me, who's been in trouble before and went through probation, there should be a time period that after probation, after you've done your time or whatever, when you have actually paid for your crimes in length mm -hmm. and it's over and done with, there should be a time period after that, that it's almost like a probationary period for work that if yeah. you can go through that time period and you can struggle in that time period. Maybe you got a job you don't want to have, but if you don't get in trouble with the law, you don't do nothing. I really do feel like your slate should be clean. I really, yeah. I don't feel like a mistake that I made 
I got in trouble when I was 18 years old. And then again, when I was like 21 or 22, Mm -hmm. I have not been in any trouble since then. I'm 36 years old next week. I still can't have any of those rights back. You're telling me as a child, I knew me making a mistake was going to impact the rest of my adult life. There should be a time period to where, Hey, look, this dude is reformed. They've done everything. I know people can get their records expunged, but it is a whole fucking process and cost the money. Oh yeah. Probably that. And that's only for one time offenders, you know, like you've got to only get in trouble one time, you know, somebody like me, I've labeled like a career criminal now. Like it's, it's over with, which I get like, I'm going to earn that trust, but yeah, I could never expunge it. And you know, like I'll never be looked at the same. And, um, and it sucks, you know, but I still may do, but there's, there's some people though, that if, if they've already got so many strikes against them, you know, um, whether it's they're they just a certain IQ level, a certain, uh, amount of money, um, and now they got a convicted felon label on them too. It's over with, you know what I mean? Like they will never have a good shot at life again. And, and it's going to be a, a, a struggle. Um, you have to get so lucky. You have to get so fucking lucky to have a good quality of life after the fact. Like yeah. I, I consider myself lucky because I went into a line of business to where background check for a, a first time, a first time felon or whatever. They don't really give a shit when all you do is talk for a living. Yeah, that's it. And then yeah. I also, I also, I get the platform to where I get to talk to people about it. So if I'm open and honest about it, most people don't mind. But I can only imagine what it is like for somebody who who just wants to, even like you said, be a lawyer one day or, yeah. or anything like that. I, I, it just it blows it blows my mind. What what do you do now, by the way? So now. <laughs> craziest thing is that i've got so much purpose we manufacture shipping containers into into tiny homes man and that's cool yeah i love what we do um you know we build these things to code they're hurricane rated they're super nice and my goal would be ultimately to give everybody who's homeless a place to live (laughs) if i could do that obviously in a perfect world um returning citizens like me who have a hard time coming from incarceration to find housing whether it's paying rent whether it's whatever, uh, owning a home to give somebody access to being able to own a home. Um, and we want to enter the affordable housing market. Like that's our biggest thing. Our niche is like that market. We, everything we produce is between 35 to $80,000. Um, we build 20 foot containers and 40 foot containers, 20 foot are like studio apartments and 40 foot are like one bedrooms, which I mean, you could be like a couple that's just starting out in life and and be able to live in that. And they're super nice. Like we build them like like residential homes. You know, our goal was to like replace trailers, like mobile homes. Um, especially here in Florida, one storm comes, they're destroyed. And uh, with our homes, they're they're hurricane rated. And they're nice. And then the outside, you can make a container look like anything. You can make it look like a a log cabin. You can make it look like a, a regular you know, brick house or, you know, stucco, or you can literally do anything to the outside, wood paneling, trek stacking, the exterior cladding to make it look, you can put a a roofing system on it. Um, So a lot of people get caught up with that on containers, but yeah, that's what we do. Our goal is to provide affordable housing and viable housing solutions to people that have been priced out of the market, people who need 
um, people that are homeless, people that are struggling with substance abuse, people that are returning from prison. So, um, yeah, that's what I do. Containing Luxury is the name of the company. And um, we that's what we're doing. Shipping containers into tiny homes. Dude, that's They're pretty cool. badass. Well, well man, yeah. I want to I say this before we get off here. I know okay. you've been through a lot. But I think even though I, it looks like you enjoy doing the containers and everything now. Yeah, I love homes, it. You were meant for so much more. And I hope that you realize that because it's, it is 100% obvious to me when I have someone that tells me they're glad that I went through what I went through because it helped them. You are going to mm-hmm. help so many fucking people. And you, it's a group of people that are so forgotten about. Like that, no no one cares. It it really hits home with me because I was one of those that needed just somebody to care and be a voice for me. And I cannot tell you how much respect I have for you that you are using your platform and your chance of even being on this show today of talking about the reform that we need in our corrections. And dude, there's there's a really special place. You know, I, I tell folks this all the time. This is one of my favorite things I've ever came up with, but it's the the good Lord allows us to go through hell just so we know what heaven's worth. And there, hey, are, pre- there are preachers in this world, and then there are warriors. I consider mm-hmm. myself a warrior. I am battle-scarred. I have been bent but not broken. I am a person that I can talk to anybody about my faith, and it means more because I'm passionate because I, I like hearing from the people that have been at rock bottom and their faith mm. is what lifted them up. And yeah. with you, you are every bit of those things. If you, if there's ever been a warrior for the good Lord to get his message out there and to help other people, it, it's you. Like, it, you. And dude, I, I'm telling you, you got all the respect in the world for me. I've heard people say that religion is for people that are afraid to go to hell and spiritualities for those of us that have been to hell and don't want to go back. Absolutely. <laughs> that the truth? Oh, I love that. <laughs> That's the truth, man. So, no, I appreciate I'm glad that we got to talk, man. I've, I've been actually, I've been super excited and looking forward to this. And that's why I made a point to reach out to you again. <laughs> I was like, I got it. We got to fit this into our schedule. Well, I, like, I'm just, I'm just glad. I'm glad you gave me a chance, and you didn't think I was just some redneck Trump supporter. Well, at first I was because I get a lot of it, man. Because I do, I speak out about me and my experience with being a conservative and yeah. how I've kind of walked away from it because of a lot of the judgment on people like me, convicted felons, and yeah. and people that have been incarcerated, and you know, not acknowledging the systemic racism that I've seen within the system and stuff like that. So, like. It makes me hesitant, but I also realize that if we don't have these conversations and if I'm not having these conversations with other conservatives or people that I think are conservative, even though that you don't uh, apply any label to yourself and I, and I don't want to label on me either. And, uh, but people that I know that are Republican or conservative, those are the people I need to be able to have conversations with, because even if I don't switch their political party view, maybe I can at least change the way they look at people who are incarcerated, people that um, are different backgrounds, demographics, race, you know, whatever it may be. And, uh, and see how the system or the decisions that we make are impacting those people as well and how we can create true unity, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. So that's the part that I'm going to work on because I need to get better at that myself. I need to be more open and willing to talk to people who have different views 
not stay in the same echo chamber and uh, try to, like you said, change hearts and minds. Like that's what my passion is. And that's what, I, you know, my, I feel like my purpose is, is to, to help people and, uh, and not just people like me that have been through it, but also people who've never been through it, but yeah. they just don't understand what it's like or why somebody could do that. And, maybe give them a glimmer of hope that people can change and that there can be a different way. So I'm glad, I'm glad I came on here. I knew that if we did get together, it was going to be a a big time slot. So I wanted to make sure that there was time. (laughs) I just had that feeling that it was going to, it was going to go on a while. So you do it it in a way, dude, that what is the, it's the way that everybody needs to approach the situation. It's knowing that somebody is going to have a different view than you. But like we said at the beginning of this, the why and having the yeah. knowledge to back it up, you're, mm-hmm. you, you leave nothing on the table. And, and the way you present it is done in such a good way that if somebody doesn't listen and at least makes them, you, you will make anybody think. Yeah. Somebody doesn't and that's have all to I want. And I want people to challenge my thought process yeah, exactly. without belittling me because yeah. most people, if they don't agree with me, they just belittle me, you know? Yeah. And we don't we don't do that around here. I, yeah. I like I like different, but the way that you go about it, you can reach so many people. And the people that don't want to hear what the hell you have to say, they're so fucking closed minded that they're never going to change anyway. So yeah. what's the point yeah. in even talking to them or trying to reach them in the first place? You're right. Yeah. Well, dude, Danny, tell them, you, tell them your social media, dude, and let's get the hell out of here. Our menu's going to talk for another hour. Yeah, Danny F. Collins on TikTok. Um, containing luxury is the company containing luxury.com. We ship in containers in the tiny homes and um, confessions of a convict on Instagram. So Danny F Collins confessions of a convict containing luxury. One of my favorite Thanks, guests I've ever had on guys. Not going to lie. I could have kept talking and I'm going <laughs> to get, I'm getting you back on the show with other people too. Like I'm getting you back and uh, we're, I want you to push your message more and I want to be part of it. I appreciate it, bro. Uh, Definitely. Folks, y'all go look up each one of his social media accounts. And uh, I just want to thank y'all for listening to the Josh Terry podcast. And please, if you've not listened to another episode, listen to this man today, every bit of it, and take it to heart. Anyway. All right, folks. So I love y'all. We will catch y'all later.